Last month, the Defense Department announced $18 million in awards for the Defense Established Program to Stimulate Competitive Research, or DEP score program, to 28 academic teams. The teams hail from all parts of the country, and the competition aims to help introduce potential researchers to DOD's unique research challenges and supportive research ecosystem. To find out more about how it works, I got the chance to talk to Dr. Bindu Nair, Director of DOD's Basic Research Office, and DEP score Program Manager, Dr. Jennifer Becker. You'll hear from Dr. Nair first. One of our goals in the department in general is to make sure that we're getting the most creative ideas for technology development and seeding the most creative ideas for technology development across the country, right? We want to make sure that we're getting the best of the brains that are out there and, and we're pulling them in to answering questions that are uh, that we believe in the long run is going to be support the defense mission. So one way to do that, so one of the things that we do is academic outreach in general. We have a very strong basic research program portfolio whose goal it is to make sure that we are tapping the latest science out there, understanding it, being involved in it, um, and also steering the direction of it. DEP score was set up because one of the questions that Congress asked us is, are you in fact making sure that you get access to all ideas wherever they come from, especially because a lot of times the the, the creativity and the ability of the department to, to work with academics is based on some very close relationships with these uh, teams of researchers in academia and the department, the program officers in the department that are asking the questions. And so, you know, this is a this can be a labor intensive activity. And so, you know, the question was, are you are you making sure that all 50 states and territories are are appropriately represented within DOD? And Congress really wanted us to make sure that we are doing outreach across the board, as well as helping us create a targeted program to make sure that in addition to outreach, we are doing um, a targeted programming to some of those states that perhaps traditionally haven't received as much in the way of DOD funding in their research and uh, development enterprise. So they gave us a formula for what state should be depth score eligible. And then we run competitions associated with those activities that is only open to those states. But in addition to the actual depth score program, the other thing that we do, or, or the competitions, the other thing we do is really targeted outreach to those states. Go out and visit, you know, like we've been out to visit schools that haven't had a lot of DOD funding bring a bunch of program officers with us so they can start building those relationships and really try to communicate how DOD works so that we can get more and more good proposals in from across the country. Very, very highly important to um, our undersecretary, the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, the Honorable Heidi Shu. She has been very clear with me that her goal is to make sure we tap into every scintilla of creativity, um, scientific creativity that the country has to offer. And and this is certainly one of the programs that we use to do that. So that's kind of the program in a nutshell. We can talk about the specifics of the program, but that's really what we're trying to do. And we're well on board with what Congress has asked us to do. Got it. And yeah, Dr. Becker, if uh, if I can turn to you now, since you're the manager of this uh, of this program, how's it working out there actually on the front lines of getting these folks involved uh, in the far reaches of uh, the U.S.? Yeah, I, I think it's going really well. We've held quite a few outreach events, as Dr. Nair has mentioned. Um, in the past year, we've been to 
West Virginia, South Dakota. Um, we were just out in Montana. So really targeting some areas where we've, we haven't seen a lot of proposals and submissions across the different um, basic research programs. So we're getting out there. We are talking to academic researchers. We're taking our program officers with us to start to build those, start to develop those conversations and build connections. And we're starting to see more and more proposals from those states. So it's very exciting. And in your interactions with these folks and these researchers, what has been the response when you actually make initial contact with them or when you first get to work with them? I think many of them are surprised that the DOD invests as much as we do in truly fundamental basic research. Our program officers, our basic research program officers are very engaged and they love to be involved and to drive the science in new directions for the DOD. And I think the academic community is sometimes very surprised by that. Add along to that, I would just sort of say, you know, I think most academics know how to write proposals to other agencies, other funding agencies. I think uh, learning how successful people have written proposals and write proposals to DOD, that I think is one of the most eye-opening things for them. And you all, I get, and through programs like this, you're trying to serve as a little bit of a bridge or a catalyst for helping folks write, get, get the lingo down, right? <laughs> Correct. Get the lingo down. And also, yeah, get the lingo down, make sure that they understand that. So we have, you know, depth score is one of those programs that has a call, right? Like everybody by such and such a date, you have to have your white paper in. We have other programs like that. But we have a very large number of DOD programs that are open on a rolling basis. And how do you engage that? You know, so we try to teach people more about the DOD writ large than just the depth score program. Got it. And so let's get into the nitty gritty. And we've talked about research from a wider perspective, but specifically, what kind of research uh, are you all funding this go around? And what were what were in those white papers that are have been selected? So I think um you know, I will ask Jen to maybe walk you through the several projects that we have selected this year and, and help you uh, with the titles and, and sort of what they are. I think the key to know is that we have a bunch of different program managers across the department. And what we do in the depth core program, because we can't handle, given the, the size of the program, we can't handle all of them, right? We pick a few program managers each year. We take their topics and those become the depth score topics for that year. That means that if your topic doesn't, or your program manager is not in this year's proposal, then it will that your topic may show up next year. So just because something is not a depth score program topic doesn't mean that it is not important to the DoD. It's just based on how we've managed, how we are managing the the stuff that comes in. Um, so what you'll hear is uh, projects based on different program managers' desires. They did the selections. We provided general guidance on what those selection criteria should be. And maybe Jen, you can walk them through what they are. Yes, please do, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for the for the FY twenty two research collaboration competition, we had thirteen different topics. And they spanned anywhere from unsteady aerodynamics and turbulent flows. We had topics in electronics, electrochemistry, materials-based topics, atomic and molecular physics, and biological soft solid mechanics, as well as mathematical optimization. So quite the range of different topics that were available uh, in the FY22 funding opportunity announcement. And then the the proposal or yeah the projects that we selected 
I mean, the the list has been published and we can we can provide that as well. But again, they are projects that are directly responsive to those topics that were in that funding opportunity announcement and span across those areas, different basic research um, addressing the challenges that were outlined by those program officers. Yeah, and I imagine they're involved in the process of who gets selected <laughs> since they're the ones who name the problems, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So DEP score follows a peer review model like many of our DOD basic research programs do. So program officers across the DOD are involved in the review and selection of those proposals that are submitted. Great. And they're reviewed on the basis of technical merit, qualifications of the PI, and relevance to DOD. All right. And so what is the next step? They got to actually do the research, I imagine, and, and uh, they'll be uh, fairly compensated for them. But, you know, have you seen that research be utilized immediately or is it just, you know, it's, it's, it's added to the mountains and mountains of data that DOD has on these topics? Yeah. So... The projects are three-year projects. So the first round of DEP score that we funded back in 2019 are just finishing. So we're starting to see the results from them. And there are different methods, different mechanisms to use those results. Um, sometimes our program officers work very closely with these um, investigators and connect them with DOD labs. And we see transition of results that way. Sometimes the, the research results open up brand new areas of basic research to pursue, and the result will be another basic research grant to investigate a slightly new area. Um, so we're starting to see those results come through now. Dr. Nair, I'll give you the last word on how this transfixes to the uh, Pentagon's research wing's overall mission of always bringing compelling research to the le defense leaders who need it. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, this is both the opportunity and the challenge of basic research, right? And this is not just depth score. Depth score is, is just a, an instantiation of the way we think about basic research. And so everything about depth score program, we pull, we try to teach people how we want to do basic research. And it can take time, right? It can take time for stuff to move from basic research to a product. But we know that if we don't do basic research, we're not connected properly into the community of scholars that are thinking about brand new ways. And so then we're going to be surprised by ways that, um, that, that science is moving. So if you have a huge program lined up, right, and this is how we're going to do technology development, if you're not paying attention to the disruptions in science at the very early end, you can make some huge mistakes, costly mistakes in that in, in that technology development. You can also miss opportunities. And, uh, and so that's part of what we are trying to make sure we do. We don't need every basic research program to be successful. In fact, if we pick only basic research pro programs that are going to be successful, we're probably not taking enough risk. But what we do wanna do is pick, um, be able to pick those winners in addition to a bunch of other stuff, right? That is that is just gonna slowly move the field forward. We wanna pick the stuff that will give us that next, you know, GPS. We will give us the next internet. We'll give us the next mRNA vaccine because all of that comes from our basic research investment because it just changes the way that people are doing science. And we wanna be, we wanna be there right at the instantiation of that which we've done in several fields like quantum and photonics. We are right there as the new ideas are being created so we can very quickly move them in ways sometimes uh, 
sometimes to classified or otherwise unaccessible programs, and sometimes just to keep, as Jen said, to keep it growing in the public sphere because it's necessary to do so. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw 
it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, 
there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that, you that's know? <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.